it came to me that like Sudan was feeling empty. He was feeling helpless and he was being overcome by the weight of what is presented in terms of extinction. And I remember I woke up and I, I tapped him on the back and I, I told him, you know, Sudan, because I used to call him buddy. I told him, hey, buddy, I, I'm going to try my best to be your voice, you know. And that's when, after promising him that and sort of tapping him and giving him a bit of cuddles, I went and stopped asking, what would Sudan say if he had the platform? Like, what could I say on behalf of Sudan? Welcome to the Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, a.k.a. Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our conservation tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back fellow conservation warriors. Today we are joined by a real life conservation superhero and superhero is an understatement in my humble opinion and his name is James Mwenda. He's a caretaker of the remaining two northern white rhinos at the Old Pajeta Conservancy in Kenya. So James my brother, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much Blaine my bro for welcoming me. Very exciting to get to chat to you all things conservation. All things <laughs> thank cons- you for having me. No worries, bro. I, I'm really excited for this. I've been fortunate enough to uh, get to know you a bit the last couple of months, thanks to the Conservation Couch. Shout out to all the couchies out there. But from our conversations, it seems like you're a bit of a deep dude, right? Like you think pretty deeply about things. And for me, I really enjoy thinking deeply about like complex questions and even like impossible questions almost. Yeah. So I've got a feeling yeah. this has got to get deep. So if you're into that, stay tuned. But to start us off, can you please introduce yourself a little bit more on who you are and what you currently do? Um, my name is James Mwenda. I currently work in Opegeta Conservancy as a rhino caretaker. Been in Opegeta for eight years. Two years, I was a crown rhino patrolman. I was tracking rhinos in the bush. And for the last six years, I've been working closely with the Northern White Chinos. Apparently, I grew in a small village besides Mount Kenya National Park, uh, which is directly on the other side of Pejeta where I'm working. And uh, I was exposed to human wildlife conflicts since when I was a small boy. Like at the age of seven years, I was sure that I needed to do something for my community and the elephants. So that is sort of where my conservation journey began. And uh, I'm really happy to, I'm living that childhood dream today, sort of being in the conservation world because uh, the conflict that my community was going through was uh, fixed when they fenced off the whole area around our home. So elephants will not come to our villages anymore. So my dream was answered, but now I'm happy to be working in conservation and something that uh, gives me motivation every day, especially because of the critical importance of what conservation means to us and also the future generation. So when you're a, a youngster, and you, your community, you know, was faced with this this uh, human wildlife conflict, specifically with these elephants. What did you think? Because as a child, you were exposed to this kind of stuff. So how did that actually make you feel? How did that make you perceive these elephants? 
to me, you know, our farm was everything. My sort of to go back, my mom uh, was really hardworking. She sort of like was taking the lead in helping grow us. We were all five together in the family. And she had a farm just very close to the park. And you can you can imagine the labor of tilling the land, preparing it, planting it, watering the plants until they are ready to be eaten. And that is the only source of livelihood you have for, for your family. And I could see the devastation that my village people was going through because elephants were very timely. They would know exactly when the foods are ready. And they would come in one night, a herd of like 100 elephants, and sweep across the farms, eating everything that they could be able to come across, bananas, arrowroots, mm. maize, everything we planted on the farm. So there was so much anger between the community to the elephants. And I remember they would you know, spend a lot of time in the night lighting fires so that the smoke would scare away elephants. They would have sort of metal and hate it together to scare away the elephants. They would call for help from the Kenya Wildlife Service, which sometimes do not help because already they would have destroyed the farm. So others would go to an extent of digging sort of ditches and covering it with grass so that elephants would even fall in hate and, mm -hmm. and get trapped. So there was all happening the community would were trying to use to be able to combat these conflicts. But unfortunately, there was no possible remedies. At the end of the day, the elephants get used to human noises. They get used to the metal sounds, and they would still come and eat the farms. So when I was that young, I, I sort of, you know, I've been able to be thinking outside slightly the box, you know, trying to think like, what's the most possible way? I mean, every other avenue seems to be failing. And and I would see when the KWS would come and they would come with rifles and they would pile up in the hair. It would scare the elephants and they would go back to, to the bush. It was like, why can't I sort of go and be a ranger, maybe learn these skills and then come and bring them back again to the community? And um, it's what I started thinking since I was seven, like what other ways can we explore? I wanted to study, you know, go to school, study, be a conservationist, understand how to deal with them. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend school in good times because, you know, I wasn't able to pay for it or through. So uh, I ended up getting a job, trying to get a job in the conservation field. And that's when I landed to be an operator. And uh, I have been so determined to learn how to deal with these animals and how to sort of speak and, and sort of be um, a buffer between the community and, and the elephant and something that has been a motivation to me to us today. So I've been able to apply that childhood dream and it has helped me to, to sort of be the inspired person that I am mm. today. Yeah, I've heard that story before and it's it's pretty crazy that you started asking these questions as a seven-year-old. Um, like you started asking these questions around kind of human wildlife conflict and why, why this is happening uh, as a seven-year-old. And I think that just goes to show you know, how your brain works and like how your heart works as well. Mm -hmm. But I remember when you're telling the story the first time, you're saying how you wanted to be a bridge between the people and the elephants. What was your plan around kind of doing that? Like, so you started thinking about that as a seven-year-old. Yeah. Considering where you're at now, how would you build that bridge? I think as a seven-year-old, that was something that instantly came to me. You know, the farm was everything, as I've mentioned. It was our food. It was sort of income to help us continue the education. And I remember going hungry for two or three nights simply because the elephants came and they ate everything. So 
if you are subjected to such kind of an environment, you know, you realize you're going hungry because a certain animal ate what was meant to be your food. Honestly, you have to think outside the box. So those are some of the solutions that I thought, because if I try to link when uh, the Kenya Wildlife Service Rangers came and, and they scared away the elephant, so they seemed to create an understanding of these animals. So I wanted to go also study, understand how to deal with these animals and come and be now the bridge between my communities. Because I would also think at that age that elephants are just animals, you know, they just are coming. Maybe they want to eat. Maybe they are trying to supplement their diet. Maybe they don't know what they are doing. They are just simply animals. So how can you help them? Because they sort of seem to they need help. Because I think if they understood the consequences they are making people go through, then they wouldn't do it. So to me, I wanted to be, how can you be able to come in between the two? Tell the community that they are important, but also help stop the elephants from ruining our farms. And now what I have done now as, as a grown up, and now that I've lived that dream, and the fact now that my community area was fenced, you know, at that time, they also tried to plant tea uh, between the community and the forest. So we have sort of uh, tea buffer zones because tea are not preferred by, by elephants. But unfortunately, elephants are very brainy creatures. So <laughs> they make their way through the lines on the tea field and they will navigate and go to the community. So that didn't help either. So what I've done is I have gone back to the community after all these years. Uh, I've been able to bring my community together. And now because I look after rhinos and we have seen how the environment is going astray in different aspects, I am telling now them the importance of conserving our environment, and especially now that we, they have to rely maybe on the forest for firewood. So I've been organizing community talks. I've done like all the villages around my village. I've done all school talks around my village. I've told them what I have learned in the field, what I'm doing in the field, and especially being the caretaker of these last two northern white rhinos bring that knowledge back to them and tell them that we need to take care, especially of our forest, which is like a source of life, not only for us, but a source of so many rivers around the Kenyan country. In a previous conversation uh, we've had, and it's also, you mentioned the story in a YouTube video as well, which I'll link in the show notes, but you talk about this very powerful experience that you shared with Sudan. So Sudan being the, the last male Northern rhino who passed away. March 2018, I believe. But you shared the story with Sudan where you noticed this large teardrop in his eye. And if you don't mind, can you expand a bit on that story and the impact that that moment had on you as a conservationist? I think, to be honest, that was sort of a very big turning point in my career. You know, since I came to work in Ogajita, and I think this is the first time I'm sharing this, I couldn't believe that the Northern White Rhinos were seven. I think I fell into the large category of people who assume that this is not true. It's not happening. It can't be. I couldn't believe that these rhinos would have completely been wiped out in South Sudan and DRC Congo. And I would sometimes argue, like, how could a vast country like South Sudan, there be no rhinos? But, you know, I continued working just as a job. I knew I had this desire to sort of learn and understand this environment. But sometimes you get into that sort of doubt, like people are saying, I mean, they are the rhinos, this is going to be okay. So when I came to work with the Northern White Rhinos, I saw them decline from seven. They were seven then. And they, they were they were like uh, five left. And I think it began when I woke up 
one morning and I was going to look after the rhinos and make sure they are okay. And I found Sunni, who was the, la- the that, uh, last male dead. And I, I remember sharing this image of him sleeping in a very abnormal posture. And I went close and, and I tried to push him and wake him up. And, and because I thought he was just like so deep asleep, but he was dead. I think something really got into me. And uh, the male that was in the zoo, I think in San Diego Zoo, died, leaving now Sudan to be the last male northern white rhino. And as someone who likes thinking a, a little bit deeply and beyond, I, I was questioning my myself being around this kind of scenario at my age, you know, as a next generation of a father. I was imagining what this kind of world is going to be 70 years when I'm an old man. And I like thinking in those perspectives, in deeper perspectives of, how will how will be the environment be when when I'm not even here? So I was there giving Sudan, feeding Sudan every day, uh, looking after him. And every evening I would go and give him carrots and bananas and I would look at him, you know, I would tear at him and I would ask myself, if Sudan would talk, what what would he tell the world? Like is the last male known to exist? And I am looking at him this evening. And I never knew social media. I never, I never knew Facebook or Instagram that I would share my struggles that I was facing every day and the emotional toll this was having on me. And I, I see Sudan dropping a tear, you know. It was so large that it wasn't invisible to me. I, I saw it dropping and it wasn't one. It was like tears were rolling down. And I was against the backdrop of, of the sun. The sun was setting. It was very quiet. And it was those moments I would, sit down and have these thoughts flow and have these ideas what Sudan would speak and I would ask, you know, what would he say if he would if he had a chance to stand on a platform, maybe address our national like leaders and tell them that I am the last, I'm representing the what extinction looks like. And so I saw him drop this tear and it hurt me deeply. Like I cried. I wondered what is this that is going inside this animal's being? And I realized there's this deep emptiness in him that is sweeping in his life. I mean, extinction is is not something, I think we underrate it as humans because we have not lived it. But it means forever. It means you're not going to come back. Whether you are an animal, you will feel the weight of it because it's sort of like this void, you know, dark place that you're going that you don't realize even whether, you know, there's no hope of coming back. So... It came to me that like Sudan was feeling empty. He was feeling helpless and he was being overcome by the weight of what is represented in terms of extinction. And I remember I woke up and I, I tapped him on the back and I, I told him, you know, Sudan, because I used to call him buddy. I told him, hey, buddy, I, I'm going to try my best to be your voice, you know. And that's when, after promising him that and sort of tapping him and giving him a bit of cuddles, I went and stopped asking, what would Sudan say if he had the platform? Like, what could I say on behalf of Sudan? And that, I had a shift. I had a notebook that I would write things that I was learning from him. So I got the first phone, and that's when I started knowing there's something called Facebook. So I would share what would come through me whenever it came. I would write it down and then share it on social media. And it's been a big way for me. As a young person, I have had a very big emotional toll watching this on an everyday basis. If you if you stop thinking of it as a job, if you think about the overall meaning of what it means, it has been 
very weighty for me to bear it on an everyday basis. And that experience with Sudan is what has sort of helped me to sort of have the passion and the drive, the deeper drive and passion that I've been having so far in terms of helping create awareness for these northern white trainers. Mm. I find that really powerful um, how these very hmm, like traumatic experiences, how people convert that into like a mission, right? Like you're seeing those tears fall down the eyes of Sudan that made you want like rethink what your potential purpose is in life for whatever purpose means. Yeah. I, I just wanted you to expand on that because when I heard that story for the first time, you mentioned that you started crying. I started crying. I mean, yeah. that I can only imagine being there, you know, in your shoes, actually not watching it through a video, but actually being there in person. Yeah. I can only imagine how that would feel. So the, you kind of touched on it before, but as someone who's working so closely with, you know, animals who are quite literally on the edge of extinction, yeah. I'm curious, considering this unique position that you're in, what does extinction mean to you? Just to go back a little bit, I just feel like sort of destiny was sort of preparing me for some of these things. I have to confess that I grew up in a very difficult upbringing, a lot of challenges as a, as a young boy. I was very bright in school. And I think one of the most emotional and sad moments in my life was when my dad looked me in the eyes when I was 12 and a half years and he told me that you know, you've become a man, you know, I can't take you to school. You need to go out and live for yourself and fend for yourself. And I just valued education because when we were growing up, teachers would tell us like education is the key to good life. And, you know, you need to have a good education to make it in life. And the man who should be providing for you looks you in the eyes and tells you like, you're an adult now, you are 12 years. Where do you go? What do you do? So I remember even contemplating doing suicide because it was really so sad for me. And um, over time, I've, I've learned that the power of changing even the most difficult situations to sort of give you an inspiration to look beyond your struggles and sort of how that can be used as a tool to become a better version of you and help improve other people maybe in the same situation. They think... This is something that I've tried to replicate as well through the emotional journey of being a caretaker of the northern white rhinos, you know. If I assumed it was work, I would be okay. I mean, whether they die or not, it's, it's not my business. Uh, but I refused to let it be work. It's My mom taught me one thing, that wherever you work, give it your heart. Work like you're working, you know, you know, I grew up in a spiritual background and it's like work like you're always working for God. You know, don't expect a pay. Don't don't look look always beyond a pay. So give your heart wherever you are. Give everything you do your heart and your full commitment because there is a bigger reward always awaiting for you. So when I came, I was scrutinizing the whole essence of being near extinction. What does it mean to me as an individual, as a responsibility, as a job? So I tried to seek deep beyond giving these rhinos carrots and closing them inside in the evening and waking up every day and letting people come and enjoy watching the last of a species because that is what so many people had when they come and visited these rhinos like oh a selfie with the last northern white rhino so 
I made it a mission to change the way people think about extinction. Because I think it's not relatable to us humans because I think we have not lived it. Even though scientists and conservationists, you're trying to explain it to people, neither of us, we've just studied fossil records, we've just studied things that prove our extinctions have been going. We've not lived it. So it's not very relatable to people. But how can we be able to tell people that this is happening? And the overall consequence of extinction is going to adversely affect us as humans and the environment that we so need for our food and for our water, for our wealth that we seek so much on an everyday basis. I mean, everything is encompassed on that. So extinction as being exposed to these animals has really helped me get a deeper understanding. Some of some of the insights that I have may not be acceptable through the normal, you know, conservationist view of things, but I have critically spent a lot of time thinking about the overall aspects of what it is. And I think some of the things that I've been sharing and talking, uh, some of the insights that I get because of being exposed to it um, and living it on an everyday basis. And to me, what I would define extinction is, I think, it's just a characteristic or the eventual of all of us collectively some being neglectful of their part in trying to to combat what is uh, happening around the world. It's it's a result of people living lives and very unconscious lives about how their day-to-day lives is affecting the environment. To me, extinction is about the good people who blame the the bad people. You know, we we complain about the oil companies, we complain about the poachers, but it goes all deeper to People who vote innocently and go home and vote the bad people who then influences and uh, encompasses the other businesses. I mean, it, it, just, it just goes beyond the bad people. It goes way to the good people who just think that their right to vote doesn't influence the way the environment is affected by the people that we give the decisions to make the decisions on our behalf. It goes to the people who will go and fuel their car, yet they are complaining about the oil companies that are destroying. I mean, it just goes so deep into mm-hmm. other aspects of life that we don't see. So that's that's my overview of what it is. I mean, I might, you know, this might be challenged by people, but I deeply sit down and think about it. And those are some of the reasons I find. Mm. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, it's this problem is complex and it's deep-rooted and oil companies and stuff like that these obviously easy targets these are easy groups of people to point the finger at but you know it's more than that and you mentioned unconscious before like and good people good people unconsciously and unintentionally can contribute to the problem that doesn't mean that they're bad people and the conscious part i brought that up because i think that is quite important because i think there is a disconnect between humans and non-human animals. And I don't like saying humans and nature because they are one and the same. Humans are part of nature, but there seems to be a disconnect between humans and this fact that they are part of nature. And often, you know, these actions that we do with all this consumption that we're doing, we're not conscious about the link between that product that we're buying or that food that we're purchasing, eating or putting in our mouth, how that can affect, you know, how that links to the environment or how this is contributing potentially to the problem. It's this lack of awareness to the to the issue. But that doesn't, again, that doesn't make someone a bad person. Uh, it just yeah. means that a good person can 
easily in the world that we live in contribute to the problem. But yeah, it's definitely not as simple as this. It's this company. It's this company. It's, it's this person. It's this person. It's way more complex than that. Yeah, that's what I've been pushing. I mean, you don't have to point a, a finger and say someone is responsible because maybe some of these big companies we see are sort of trying to meet the demands that we are cre creating as good people. And they end up having very large impacts on the ecosystem simply because they have a demand that they have to supply. I mean, so it now, to me, it narrows down to the most individual person. That's why I think living consciously, uh, being careful and thinking beyond, you know, yourself, like how your ways on an everyday basis and how you can improve. I mean, we won't get to a point where we, we will, we will say people will not consume, people will not need gadgets or they won't live this life. I mean, that's not possible because if we start pointing fingers, then at the end of the day, we'll be like, nothing is okay, you know? Because we've seen, I mean, every aspect is a, a affecting the, the ecosystem in its own different way. So the more we are conscious about what we are consuming, the more we are careful how we consume it, the more we are, we are keen how we are affecting the environment on an everyday basis by scrutinizing our day-to-day -day lives, the more we are adding value. And those small little efforts will add up to be a better environment. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite quotes is, I think I'm pretty sure it's a Tanzanian proverb. And I think I've referenced this quote like heaps of times on this podcast, but it's little by little, little becomes a lot. And I think that's really important because these small actions, people think, you know, this small action has a small impact, but the reality is a collection of small actions equals a big impact. Mm -hmm. And that is really important because that gives a lot more weight to an individual decision. If you think, yeah. if you change your mindset of this individual action is small versus this individual is small today, but big tomorrow, that could be a big influence on whether or not you pursue that action. But I wanted to quickly clarify on that conscious part, because what I mean by that is we as human beings, as a species, we are the most kind of influential species currently on the planet. That doesn't mean we're the best or the worst. It just means we have a lot of influence and we could either influence for good or for bad but because of that influence comes this level of responsibility and part of that responsibility is just thinking about what we do and so that's what i mean by being conscious when we do something let's just let's just think about it um, let's not just do something without even considering potentially the consequences so that's what i mean i just wanted to quickly clarify what i mean by acting more consciously i mean just thinking more about what we do one thing i'd like to touch on is so when i think about problems in conservation there's obviously heaps of problems but for me personally when i think of problems in conservation i ask myself is this a root problem or is this like a symptom so for you then this is like one of these impossible questions probably but what do you think is the root problem causing extinction I mean, to me, it's, it's very diverse. I mean, definitely that's a very, uh, diverse, uh, if you critically think about it, uh, as I've maybe mentioned earlier on, the eventual extinction of species, uh, in these modern times, I think it's sort of like a layer. It's one thing leading to the other, mm -hmm. and then eventually will lead up to an extinction of a certain species. So what I mean by that is, we, we normally, especially for me, the environment that I work in, protection of animals and, and rhinos precisely, 
we so much lay emphasis on the butchers, the bad people, you know. But when I've been critically looking through all that, I, I ask myself, okay, is, is the butcher really a bad person? And sometimes we shift the blame on them. But to me, poaching, for instance, using it as an example that leads to a extinction of species, has a lot more to do with wealth and the essence of there being money and power than it has to do with a poor village person who wants to kill just to survive for five days because they have nothing. Mm. So to me, poaching has more to do with wealth and power than it has to do with poverty. Why? Because a kilo is selling at 65,000 US dollars, one kilo, and then multiplying maybe by, by the number of kilos that certain rhino will produce. I mean, that means the affluence that comes with money is what is influencing what is being done on the ground to come and give the motivation of killing that individual animal on the ground. Then how do all these things make through to get even to the market? That means there is corruption in the governments, our airlines, our ports, these things filter through until they get to the market. Because then if they don't make all the way to the market, there would be no motivation to kill. So then you find that there's so many people involved and we end up pointing fingers to the bad people. We have decision makers who influence to stop this, but they can't make laws that are very concrete. We have seen in some countries where you cannot shoot at a poacher unless they have shot at you. I mean, you see, so it comes from the decision makers, the administration down to the people. So to me, extinction of species is one thing leading to the other. So it's not just a one-time thing. It's just an eventual a sequence of things that leads to the other. So it's just when you ignore, maybe when you go out and spray your farm, you're killing the bats and the small insects that are very important to the ecosystem. So you're gradually contributing to that. So when we do that, multiplied by the larger scale that we need, you're eventually leading to one thing. So that may be the overall that I would say, but we are all in it. In one way or the other, if you're not leading an extinction of rhinos, maybe what you're wearing, what you're, the way you're living might not be directly, but your way of living could be influencing extinction of species on the ground, even mm-hmm. without you knowing. That's my basic understanding. Yeah, and, and that comes back to this idea of, you know, everything is connected, right? Like, so yeah. every action that we do is not like in isolation. It is It has an influence on, you know, what is around us and what is around us, you know, the environment. Like, we can't as humans just think that, you know, our action doesn't have an impact. It doesn't have a ripple on effect because it, it does. And interesting that you brought up those poachers because... For me, as someone who absolutely knows no idea about how that even works, for me, I had this kind of assumption that poverty was driving people to to poach as a means to feed their family or whatever. And I mean, I'm I'm sure that is the case for some people, but because there is such a prize for that horn or for that tusk, that also drives, that's an incentive as well for multiple people, I guess, towards doing that. Yeah. I mean, Glenn, if you look at it, um, when I was growing up, I mean, there was all these traditional aspects of how our grandparents, you know, taught us how to approach. You know, for instance, I was told, like, rhinos are very dangerous. 
they, you know, they don't turn. We had all these stories. Buffaloes are sort of like they, they can urinate on their tails and swing it. And when you get the <laughs> droplet, you rub yourself and fall down even when you're standing a tree. If you look, and these are, you know, my own personal instincts, they are not scientifically um, approved. But if you look at the demand, from the demand perspective, where the market is, is not generally in Kenya. Let me cite Kenya, for instance. We don't have any aspects of using rhino horn. It's on a very small scale. See, so both elephant tusks and, and rhino horn products are not widely used in Kenya as they are used by the demand that is out, outside of this country. Mm-hmm. So you tend to ask yourself now, who is really influencing? And I was watching the, the, the documentary that was released by the by BBC. You realize some of the pressure that is given to certain countries is to fuel demand in other countries. Mm. If we stuck with our tradition, if there was no external influence to or, or desire for these products, maybe our hyenas will still be safe. Mm. Because we don't we don't have a need for their horns in the local uses here. We don't have a belief in their medicinal beliefs and, and those aspects. So if you look at, and that's something that I've been looking in my perspective, like if you look at the, the, the trade and, uh, and the selling of pangolins and vine horn products, it's much externally. Yes, from the it's like a global the, thing. It is. It's like a global thing. So network. it's a motivation now that comes from other people that are not even natives to our country and they are leading to extinctions of species. So where exactly is the problem? So if if now there's no that motivation, the local village person will have no motivation to come and kill a rhino because why? If you don't need it for meat, you don't need it for their hunt. But now someone is outside there with a lot of money and they are willing to buy it. So the poverty level exposes you to this opportunity that you will get this amount of money when you go kill them. And we all know you can do anything to survive. So you will get the motivation to go and kill. So I think we should stop shifting the blame to poverty and shift the blame to lawlessness, corruption, Mm. and the affluence that comes with money. Mm. I'm not saying poverty is not a factor, a driving factor to poaching and all of that. But it's just only one part of it, but we have given it so much in the view and override the essence that some countries are using a rhino horn. Even some that are not in Asia, in the Middle East, some are using it as bracelets, quietly mm. and secretly. I mm. saw a research that so many countries in this world are using, you know, things that are made of animal products. You know, so to me, you know, we sh- humans have a way of shifting blames to the bad people, the podcast. Yeah, and hu- you humans are good at that. Humans are good at shifting yeah. the blame. <laughs> um, the next question is is equally simple and complex, <laughs> and that is, what is a conservationist? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> that's very easy as well. I agree with you. It's easy and it's very profound. But to me, a conservationist is someone who has an in-depth love and understanding value and appreciation for the environment that provides food, water, clean air, wealth, and every aspect of life, and as well as understanding that it's crucial to have 
a clean environment for other living things that inhabit this planet at this period of time. So that's what, to me, I would describe a conservationist. And I am opposed to the idea that a conservationist is someone who goes to the school and learns things about conservation. Because to me, and I think we can debate on that. <laughs> oh, no. No, f- f- finish your thing and then I'll, I'll add to it. Yeah, because I have a feeling, and that is something that I'm sort of trying to shift. Because I think when we professionalize it, when we make it a career, other people perceive it as someone's responsibility because it's not in their line of life. And I think... To me, if you ask me what is the greatest problem with conservation, I will tell you it's making it to be a professional career. <laughs> Why? Because we cannot shift the responsibility and the consequences of the environment of 7 billion people on a few mm. individuals who have gone to school and studied conservation. Mm, I, I mean, agree. I mean, it's not. there's two issues that come to mind when when you're just talking about that. And one is if a conservationist is only someone that goes to university, you're cutting out a significant portion of the human population who are going to act as a conservationist. That's one issue that I have. The second issue is you're assuming that you can only develop skills and experience that is beneficial to conservation through having a university degree. And I think that is ignoring a significant part of the problem. Like, there are yeah. many people, I imagine, in different countries, indigenous cultures, you know, who have lived off the land for so many years. They've got yeah. a lot of experience. They've got a lot of well, yeah. wisdom to contribute yeah. to solving this problem. But I'd also include that university can teach you things that perhaps you can't learn not going to uni. So the issue yeah. is not it's this way or this way. It's yeah. there are the key part is developing a skill set in order to be able to contribute to solving a problem. And yes, you can develop that skill set through university, but you can also develop that skill set through other means as well. And we can't ignore the other means because there's so many problems to solve. We need to unify all the efforts of people that are wanting and capable of solving the problem. So yeah, I feel you, bro. I feel you, bro. So I think we are in the same line of thinking. Definitely, because that's my exact idea. No, we cannot honestly rule out the essence of having a formal education. It helps you see things in a different perspective, some of the applicable aspects of, um, you know, conservation, you can learn from there. But, you know, as time goes by, we sort of drive it towards that direction. The more we drive it to that direction, the more the other people feel left out. It's not their part. You know, it's not easy to convince a lawyer that he has a role to play in conservation because you feel like I have a brother, I have a colleague who went and studied conservation. I am a lawyer. But he doesn't understand that we need environmental lawyers Mm -hmm. who can speak on behalf of the environment. I'm just using it as an example. Mm -hmm. So to me, what I'm pushing for is that the 7 billion people on the planet, if we took ourselves responsibly, we will not have the problems that we are having on the environment. So it's to me, it's more of a global thing. Conservation is, a, is our thing for all of us. Because to me, I'm convinced that as long as you live 
you're breathing, you're eating, you're drinking, you're wearing. And at the end of the day, all of this is you need to equally give back to be getting the same. So the moment we start embracing and showing people that they have a part to play, they have a role to play in the ecosystem, and in the more we are curbing down some of the problems we have to fight on as conservationists, trying to avert, because simply now we have a global understanding that it's a responsibility for all of us. So if individually we take it together, then we're minimizing the problem at a very large extent. So that that's what my convention is all about, because... I have to be honest, like I never, I never, I, I didn't, you know, go to any college to study conservation about, but I have seen people who can dismiss you as an indigenous person. Okay. I've seen people who can listen to you because you don't have a, a letter, you know, from a school to say that you're a conservationist, you know? Yeah. And it, it gets like we have indigenous knowledge. And that's one area that I want to dig deep into. Some of these indigenous aspects and approaches to conservation are very fundamental because they are not only communally accepted by the local people, they have been using it for years and years. Mm. And unless we integrate these aspects, unless we show these people that they value and they matter, you know, when you come and say that I know how because I've been maybe in an institution and you don't know anything and what you do is not okay, I mean, people will look at you to do it. Mm. So my argument is based on having gone to local communities, having seen the way, having heard from people and the feedback. And it's it's what, what I think is applicable. The more we show, I mean, the more we inspire people to care for the planet from a, an equilibrium aspect of it, the more we are having less problems with the environment because the problems that are affecting the planet are brought by people. Yeah, exactly, because we are the influences of and we're yeah. influence we're the bad types of influences at the moment. Oh my goodness. Oh, geez, like it, I remember hearing Jane Goodall say this. And she says something along the lines of like if all the species of the world came together and they had to vote out one other species on the planet, they would unanimously vote out human beings. We are we are that person at the party that no one likes. Um but Unfortunately, for all the other species of the planet, we we hold all the a lot of the power. And look, we, it may benefit us, but we are screwing over a lot of other fellow Earthlings, and that's not cool. I mean, we're we're currently in the sixth mass extinction. Yeah. Extinction is is occurring at a rate at a rapid rate, an unnatural rate, historically speaking, and. That is large, largely attributed to to one species, and that is us. And we need to stop that somehow. somehow. That's why I'm, that's why I've got this podcast because yeah. it's almost like an impossible uh, problem, right? It feels impossible sometimes. And I'm and I'm an optimist. I'm like irrationally optimistic a lot of yeah. the times, but I often ask myself, like, <laughs> how do we? How do we do this? How do we reverse this? I mean, there's a way. I mean, bringing everyone on board, I think it's one of the simplest solutions. That's what I will leave um, upholding and campaigning for. If we all come together, if we all collectively understand our role, I am optimistic too that we can revert some of the consequences that we have. And that's why I said scientists have done a good job going out there, scanning the environment, understanding the risks, the consequences that we have brought, 
what is probably going to happen. Mm. We have all the facts. I mean, <laughs> we have all the facts that the world is at, the planet is at crossroads. Yeah. Now, what do we do? I mean, so to me, is we need to bring all the people on board and tell them, our planet, this is what is happening to it. Person will ask, what can I eventually do? And then we lead them to, this is probably what you can do using now some of the scans and, and, the, and the researches and the environmental analysis that has been done. They're like, if we stop doing this, if we mm-hmm. cut down doing this, if you stop eating meat uh, three times a week and eat it maybe once a week, if you do this, if you don't wear this kind of clothes, if this is how people will, we can cut down a whole bunch of it. So I believe there is hope, but if all people are willing to come together and yeah. in those single ways help. It requires a collective effort. Um, one thing that you just touched on there, which I'd like to expand on a bit, and we've talked about this before, but this idea of, you know, do we need more scientists or do we need more like science educators or science communicators? That is a very, very interesting question because obviously I'm very, very, very pro-science, right? I'm, I love science. I think it's super, super important. Yeah. But you you said like we, we know a lot of the facts and we know a yeah. lot of the, the answers to these problems. So it's, it's not a information problem that we have. It seems to be a communication problem. And, yeah. and like for me, like I, I don't know the, the um, exact numbers, but let's say they're out of all the scientists and all the science communicators slash science educators in the world, collectively they equal 100 people. To me, it seems like there's probably out of that 190 uh, scientists and 10 are science communicators. I'm just guessing those numbers, but like yeah. it, seem, it, it seems to me that it's probably about right. Um, that is a lot of science that isn't being communicated. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so we yeah. have all the answers, or we have a lot of answers, but yeah. we are struggling to communicate that science to the general public. And also we struggle to communicate that science to the people that are ultimately making these decisions. Yes. So yes, I love science. Yes, we need scientists, but we need educators. We need communicators to amplify the science. I think that yeah. is really important. I, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, that's what I go to a point and I said, like, I don't think we need more scientists. And I think people think that I'm controversial <laughs> or any, you know, but yeah. I am not. I mean, think about all the knowledge. Think about if the more we continue producing, people will tell us the facts that the world is collapsing. Yeah. And then, and, and, and that comes at a point when the BBC production was released on Sunday. It is all the facts of very key scientists on this planet giving facts as to why and what is causing the problem to the environment. Mm. And I think what we, we created is we created a moment where people sit down and say, like, truly, our world is at a crisis. But then we need people to tell us, to tell the masses, to tell the others, 7.8 billion people, whoever it, it is, that the projections that we've made and, and the analysis that we've made that the environment is at, at crossroads, this is what we can do. You know, 
imagine of someone who doesn't like science at all, someone who maybe wakes up and goes to an office or someone who does their job in a different aspect. We need to relay this information, even in the most simplest mm. ways possible, where it can be understood by people. Because as much as we shout these problems to the environment without giving simple solutions to the everyday people, mm. we are not solving the problem. Mm-hmm. So to me, I was like, we need people to extrapolate the science that is being uh, released out there to be able to come bring it down. And that is why I am lobbying now and I'm trying to work on something that we can lobby for even governments to introduce it to schools so that the information that scientists have already created can be introduced even to the young children in even the simplest ways possible so that they can comprehend and understand how crucial the environment is to them and why it really matters to them and what it was before, what it is now, and what it is probably going to be if we don't take action. Having that sense of responsibility, not only to young people, but to the contemporary humans living on this planet, is what is going to help this world more. But imagine of a scenario where we have people coming up every day with facts, with facts, and then we don't have them relate down to the people that need that information the most, then we are not helping. So that's why to me it's like, we need scientists. They have already warned us. I mean, we already know that the planet is, is in a bad state. Mm. But how then do we take it down to the local people, to the 7 billion people living on the planet? I mean, that remains the biggest question that we need to answer. And I can tell you for sure, if we have to help this planet, we need to now start working on the general masses, mm-hmm. the person who feels like this is not their thing, it's a profession, it's a job for others, because so many people assume conservationists will fix the problem because maybe they went to school and landed and we've made it look like a career. It is mm-hmm. not. It is a responsibility for us. So for me, shifting those facts to people's minds on an everyday basis of life is where we need many more people. I agree that talking about the science stuff, um, it makes me go back to a quote that I remember when I was a, a youngster, probably would have been about, I don't know, 10. Uh, it was at church, actually. This is when I used to go to church. Um, I was um, used to, I grew up in the Mormon faith, currently no longer practicing, but learn a lot through that experience. And the quote was, have you heard of the quote, knowledge is power? Yes. So this, this person um, at church this particular day, he said, knowledge is potential power and you need to you know, act upon that. And I th- that made me think of the science because science, all the scientific evidence is, is knowledge, but it's potential power. It still needs to be actioned. It still needs to be, you know, that something needs to happen from this information and Again, it goes, it goes back to the, the communication of that knowledge to the people who are doing the, making these decisions and doing these influential, impactful actions. Um, real quick, uh, how important do you think education is to conservation over the long term? I mean, to be honest, I am sure education is the, you know, it's sort of like the, the sort of a silver bullet to add curbing some of the environment crisis that, and the climatic chaos that we're seeing. I mean, what lacks is 
a basic simple understanding to the many people why and what the environment means to them. And that was, I was talking to someone and I was saying like, if we don't introduce this thing to young people, right when they start learning and start their basic early school learning, that the, the planet is important to us because it gives food, it gives water. They appreciate that when they're young. Then we will continually fail because we will raise up people who have no connection and understanding to the environment. And it becomes really hard telling them to care because we still, I have seen on my life discussions, people who are very vulgar saying that we are lying. The environment is okay. I mean, we are using rhinos just to, to lie to people that it's, it's, you know, we have people who don't believe that it's, there's a connection and things are going wrong. So to me, education is very paramount. And when I mean education, it's not like we need everyone, you know, to, to be scientists and all of that. I mean, the general knowledge of understanding of what the planet and the environment and the natural resources we are nursing from it on an everyday basis, how crucial they are, but not only how crucial they are, but how can we protect them? How can we live sustainably? How can we uh, make sure that uh, on an everyday basis we are being helpful to the environment? Not, mm. not just because we are getting what we are getting from it, but the cohesion and the connection that the environment needs to have is built on how we, we protect it. Mm. I, I don't know, but that's the greatest feeling that I have. Yeah. Education is, yeah, is super, super important and education for the, the younger generation. Right. And I remember yeah. I listened to a very wise guy and he said something to me. He said, if you've got to bend a tree, bend it when it's young. And, uh, that, <laughs> <laughs> and that person was you. And I remember when you yeah. said that for the first time, I was like, mate, that is so, so true. Um, and yeah, if the youth of today, if we provide them with the right education, yeah. hopefully they'll be the influences of tomorrow that we wish we could be because it begins, right? When you're, when you're young, you're a lot more malleable. You're like a sponge when you're young and the older yeah. you, like I, again, I'm not a psychologist, but I know, I know roughly that when you're younger, you absorb more things and then the older yeah. that you get, it's harder like there's you get yeah. less spongy um yeah. so yeah ingraining all that um that uh, important education and wisdom and environmental wisdom into the the younger generation early is really really important um yeah. one guest question that i have is do you think we this is again this is looking into the future we've, we've kind of touched on the past the present and this is more like the future do you think we will see a northern white rhino calf born in our lifetime through in vitro? I think that's how you pronounce it. So for just real quick, uh, I'm, I'm no expert on the topic, but in vitro fertilization roughly means, because obviously there's two northern white rhinos left, two females. Um, yeah. In vitro fertilization means taking the eggs from the remaining females, and correct me if I'm wrong, and mixing that with stored sperm from various male northern white rhinos, yeah. um, wherever they may be, to create an embryo. Mm -hmm. And that embryo would then be implanted into a southern white rhino. Yeah. 
Is that right, roughly? Yeah, that's that's right, and that's what is uh, underway. I think, uh, as you have said, that the the overall importance of science is that it has been able to uh, come up with solutions and ideas and projections of how uh, we can be able to save some of the diminishing aspects of the of our environment and species. And I think that is where one crucial aspect that is being to used to save the northern white trinos because uh, I have sat a lot with these scientists and you know I'm very curious I ask a lot of questions mm -hmm. and I just exactly want to know whether you know are we going in the right direction is this really hopeful and I ask them a lot of questions and I'm, I'm pretty much convinced that um, it has worked with horses it has worked with humans they are replicating the same procedures. And uh, I have faith the fact that we have a closely related subspecies of rhinos, the southern whites, that will get the embryo transfers. And the fact that they have been able to perfect, uh, perfect the, the scale of ovum pica, they have collected it three times. Two times last year, where they succeeded to uh, get three viable embryos that are frozen uh, and stored in liquid nitrogen. The only, uh, what they're working now is to do the embryo transfer to a surrogate mom. So answering the question, I believe there is hope. I mean, so far they have created an embryo, which is a big leap because this is the first time it's being done on rhinos. So if they perfect the embryo transfer part, the females we already have that are waiting to be surrogate moms are good mothers. They have good mothering abilities. They have calves already. We hope they are going to raise these animals in a semi-wild environment in preparedness that if this succeeds and we have more calves, they can one day, at a point in time, be reintroduced in their native homelands, which was uh, South Sudan and DRC Congo. So if I have to answer that question, I think there is a ray of hope. And I'm not biased because working here on an everyday, you know, that is the hope I would want to have that I wouldn't be one of the people to have been the last to take care of these animals. So it's something that I hope that it works mm. through the intervention of, 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 this, of the scientific skills that are being used. And another thing to add to that is this experience in developing this technology, obviously we are hopeful that it works right for these rhinos. Um, but the, this whole experience will teach conservationists a few lessons, right? That hopefully that we could apply elsewhere as well. Um, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully this pro a procedure works. Um, but you, you said something about working with the rhinos uh, and you know them being the last of their kind. And I, I, I suppose I asked this question a, a little bit earlier, but often when people think of endangered species, they think, you know, automatically they focus on the animal and sympathize for the animal, which is fair enough. But but for someone like you, you're the caregiver of, of a critically endangered animal. There's two left. Yeah. Um, your particular job, you are with them a lot. You are creating, you know, you're forging this relationship with them, this emotional connection, the spiritual connection. I imagine, and I can only imagine, that that must be quite draining emotionally. Um, like if you don't mind, like how does that personally, how does that make you feel from like a, a, an emotional or mental point of view working with an animal that you love where there's two of them left? 
I think to be honest, it's um something that takes an emotional toll on me um very often because it's you know, unless the science has come now and seems to be the remedy, it's like being in a class knowing that you'll fail. It's like James, you are a caretaker, look after these winos. When they die, you will be told you're the last of the people that looked on them on the planet. And it's sad. I mean, these winos are beautiful, charismatic beings. You know, they are these prehistoric attributes. They are they are just so energetic. But then you realize how weak they are in the presence of humans. Mm. You you realize when you see them as beautiful creatures, someone else sees them as as a trophy that they can pull a trigger and a fun killing. Someone else thinks it's and, and it takes an emotional toll. And that's that's what leads me to be like, what is actually conservation? It's maybe probably trying to protect what someone else is trying to destroy. And I think that's where we draw the line that education is important because if you tell people why it is important, then they won't stop doing some of the harms that we're seeing. So I think, you know, I am spiritual. So I think I have these moments where I just go and, 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 you know, sit down and, and think about my life. And as I mentioned earlier long, the experiences that I've gone through in life has sort of helped me to overcome this particular time working here, you know, because I've had a lot of struggles growing up as a young kid and made my way to be where I am today. It's been a real struggle in life. And that has helped me to overcome that emotional, uh, free fall that, uh, happens to be around these, uh, rhinos. But at the end of the day, I I give my best. That's why I've been very proactive in raising awareness, whether in social media, going to schools, going abroad and traveling, whatever, there are opportunities to go and speak. So I feel that I have done my best. You know, I wake up every day with that feeling that um, if there's anything I could have done for these winners, I could have done it. So I'm always satisfied based on my mom's lesson that always do everything you do with your heart. So mm-hmm. I know that even if I had to stop working with the rhinos tomorrow, I wouldn't look back and say there's a missed opportunity that I didn't create awareness when I had a chance, when I didn't talk to people and tell them what these rhinos means. So that give, sort of gives me a satisfaction on an everyday basis. You know, mm-hmm. I look up at these rhinos and say like, I am trying my best to give and leverage the opportunity of being here and using you as an emblem of extinction to people that are willing to listen to me. And that gives me sort of a gratification in me and helps me shift that emotional toll. Because if I feel helpless, then I'm going to be desperate at the end of the day. And I think also getting comfort in sort of um, thinking about that role and what I can do and trying to do it has really helped me. And that's how I've been able to avoid some of life's difficult obstacles is trying to look deep within that obstacle and see how you can come out of it a better person. And also, if you can improve someone who might be going through the same ordeal of life. And mm-hmm. it's really hard. Man. It's really hard looking at life every day. It's sad. It's really sad. Adversity is a really interesting thing. Because, you know, for me, I've, I've um, had a level of adversity, not obviously different to you, but everyone's different. 
but um, even with me, because you're saying how as a seven-year-old, you were asking these questions around um, why are these elephants coming in and destroying our farms? And, and you're like, as a seven-year-old, despite this, you're like, how can I be a bridge? Like these elephants aren't meaning to be harmful. Um, there is something there. I want to try and be a bridge between the elephant and the, the people. As a seven-year-old, like that's pretty crazy. But like for me, I remember um, some, you know, just real getting real deep here, but might as well YOLO. So I'm going to cut YOLO out. YOLO out. Maybe I won't. Um, as a seven-year-old, so my my dad died when I was seven. You know this. And yeah. I started, because I feel like I was born, like I have been programmed in a certain way to think quite deeply. But then yeah. when you are faced with adversity, um, you it kind of forces you in a position to think deeply. So as a youngster, I was like, okay, why does this happen? Why does, why does, what's the meaning of life? You know, why does, as a seven-year-old, and then again, stepdad dying when I was 13. And for me, I was like, okay, what, what does this all mean? And um, it's funny, like when these things happen, you, you try and like, okay, what, you try and use that as fuel almost. You try and convert, again, yeah. convert that adversity into something that is beneficial to you um, from a practical point of view. Um, hmm. Last question. So this one, uh, this question is informed from that story that you mentioned earlier about the teardrop mm-hmm. in Sudan's eyes. So the question is, if Sudan was looking down on us today and could give us humans some advice, what do you think he would say? I think Sudan would want us to revisit our very aspects of life, I think. As, as we have mentioned all along this discussion, what led to him being the last of his kind is a sequence of series and events and actions on, on our everyday basis. You know, I find it really hard to detach politics from extinction of species and uh, from in in that perspective, in terms of the administration's role in the, having laws, regulations, restrictions, and and having better environmental friendly uh, approaches to to the environment, I find it really hard that you know our leaders talk about health progress, economic progress, infrastructural progress, without realizing all these are elements of the environment, you know, so. There are different components that leads to species extinction. And I think we need to take total responsibilities for the actions that are, we are doing on an everyday basis. And I feel Sudan would want us to take responsibility for even what was done before we were here. Because we, we, we sit down and complain that the world is global warming. And there were some companies that were there before. All our fathers made the wrong choices. I mean, it's not leading us anywhere. So I wasn't there in the 70s when these rhinos were being decimated. And now I'm cutting the responsibility of looking after the last two northern white rhinos. I had the, the, the responsibility of looking after Sudan. So we need to stop shifting brand and take responsibility of some of the things that are affecting our climate and our environment. The moment we take total responsibility, we start getting even the simplest solutions to some of these problems. 
we start seeing ourselves as participants rather than um, you know uh, people that need to be worked for by other people in terms of our aspect. So I think Sudan would want us to revisit our understanding about environment in general and how our actions on an everyday basis influence and leads to the series of uh, you know dire consequences that we are seeing on the environment. Mm. As someone who's who knows Sudan or who, who knew Sudan quite well, I think yeah, I think humans listening to this. Obviously, you're a human if you're listening to this, but yeah, let's take that uh, advice on board because the worst thing for me is if something bad happens, I'd hate for nothing positive to come from it. Like this idea, I think when when there are only two species left, right? There's two northern white rhinos left. Everyone collectively is like, this is a bad thing, but yeah. it, it's a pity that it takes, it gets to this point in order to get that collective agreement. Yeah. Um, I just wish we could, you know, I wish it didn't take, there's only two animals left to be like, let's do something. You know what I mean? We need, I wish there was some way we could agree collectively beforehand. Yeah. yeah. Um, that would make the work a lot. I agree. I have seen it. When we have a poaching crisis and you have a rhino killed, People tend to support more than when you're telling them we need resources to protect them naturally. When you have an orphan baby, you find millions or thousands of donations coming through. Mm. But if you say let's we need resources to protect them before they are killed, people don't grasp that sense. You know, people have this tendency of waiting until things get to the extreme, mm. and then they will. Of um, of serving them, and that is why I need people to be very, very careful, because you know we might think that science will save the northern white rhinos, or science will save a few other solutions that are affecting in the environment. But man, some of the things that are happening in the environment can never be taken to a lab. If the global warming happens, we can't fix it. It's going to be permanent. If our if the air gets polluted. It's, there's no way to fix it. If buying oxygen in the hospital is very expensive. So there are some of the things that as much as we are, and that is, that is something I say with, uh, you know, it might feel controversial, but it's okay. Hmm. It's true that some of the things that, some of the things can't be solved in a lab or through science. They are better being natural resources the way they are. And we protect them as naturally as we can because when we permanently change them, then there's no way back. And I think that is where will be the tipping point of life on Earth. Because mm. when we will get to that point, it will be an irreversible state of things. Mm. So we need to take the lesson of the northern white channels. Maybe yes, we will succeed through in vitro fertilization, but some of the environmental changes and climatic chaos that we're seeing are some of the things that humans will not fix once we lose them from their natural perspective. Yeah, I agree. Um, we're, we're nearing the end of the podcast. Uh, I've got a couple of like closing questions, but is there anything you wanted to touch on before we get to the final couple of questions? I think we pretty much had a uh, different the conversation. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, that's good. Yeah. 
So, so how can people connect with you online? Yeah, I'm uh, active on social media in different platforms, and um, I'm on Instagram, I'm on uh, Facebook, uh, I'm on YouTube as well. All with the essence of using social media, it has become a very big tool to me, especially get rid of the emotional toll that has been. I have social media has played a like an over seventy percent in helping me share what I was going through, and people found it relatable which has become a good way to relay the messages that I think I need to share out to the world. And uh, yeah, that's how people can get me online. And um, and also through the conservancy where I work, um, so much engaged with uh, different conservation projects, which is Ophelia Conservancy. If they search Ophelia Conservancy, they still can do, see some of the things that I'm doing, live discussions, virtual classrooms, um, and, and all of that. Um, interesting that you said it's kind of like an outlet. It's like in a social media is a good tool, but it's also like an outlet for you to just express yourself, I guess. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really helped me. I mean, when I, when I didn't have a phone, I was having a notebook where I would write what I call my thoughts. You see, sometimes I will post things and write my thoughts. These were things that were heavily coming to me and some of the things that they came to me in my caretaking aspect and I mm. share them to the people. The mm. good thing is that uh, people have related with them so much and they has helped me get that emotional toll and know that the message is going out. Otherwise, if I had them closed in me, maybe I would have had a mental breakdown, you know, because it's really a big weight, but I was able to share that weight. That's why to me, social media has become, is a very positive too. And if it's used well, can help you mm. in different aspects. And that's how it has helped me. That's a very interesting insight because for a lot of people, social media has the opposite effect, right? It's It makes people a lot of the time mess with their mental state. It makes them become more anxious or, or whatever it may be. Um, so to hear you say that social media has actually um, been a positive experience for you psychologically, that is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, final question, bro. What message do you want to leave the conservation tribe? Um, what I would want the conservation tribe to know is that um, there's still a chance and a ray of hope to uh, bring change to the environment. Things are not completely out of hand. And I would want to encourage them to think beyond uh, themselves. Mostly, I have to say, honestly, our generation has been formatted even by motivation speakers that success is all about us. And my grandmother used to tell me that life is transition, you know? Life is, life is transition. You know, I'm trying to translate it from my local language to English. And what that means is that if you've lived, you need to live life on heart. That is why there were sacred lands. There were certain things that people would not do within the community. That is the traditional approaches that they used to make sure that they guaranteed the existence of life. But as we have evolved with time, we have wanted more freedom. We have started, you know, thinking more about self and all of that. And that has shifted us from thinking about how our day-to-day -day actions influence um, some of the consequences we are seeing in Parliament. So I want to encourage and say there's life beyond ourselves, you know, 
and there's a planet. Even if it's not for the other humans, you know, some people say, I don't want even have kids because I don't want to create more problems for the planet. Well, and okay, but your actions might be living or making the, uh, the planet not to be a good place for other living organisms that guarantees the well-being of the environment. So what I want to encourage is that um, we need to think deep within ourselves and also think outside ourselves, think about the environment, think about how even our actions affects other people because they might be okay for us, but they are ruining the environment. Um, so uh, to the conservation tribe members, I think we are in this together. Whatever that happens to the environment, we'll, we will be equally together in it. So let's revise our understanding about the environment and let's be part of the solution. And I believe in us. I believe in our ability to make the planet a better place. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again. And I will see you in the next episode.